Hello and welcome to today's ResiCast. We're talking about data and operations in real estate. And I'm with Neil Gamasma from Yardi. He's the head of international there. With Comrade Davis, who's the head of real estate sector for Osborne Clark. And Alex Note, who is fund director for Build to Rent at PFP Capital. Comrade, we'll start with you. Obviously, your position, uh, Osborne Clark, as a, as a corporate lawyer and, and head of the real estate uh, practice there. You're obviously working with a number of large listed businesses and a number of major fund managers, investors, and built around people like Graystar, MNG Real Estate. In the legal profession, data and, and automation has, has shaken the, the, the profession quite a lot, hasn't it, the last few years in terms of taking out a lot of the, the bureaucratic work, a lot of the low low value stuff. Has it started to impact real estate in the same way, or, or you know, do people? Uh, how, how far along the path are we? Well, it's a good question. Um, I guess if you look at law and real estate, they're two of the oldest industries uh, known to man. As long as people have been around, they've needed somewhere to to, to live, uh, and they've also needed lawyers. And, and I guess to that extent, they're both industries that have struggled to some degree to keep up to pace with developments in technology. Um, but at the same point in time, they've both been quite disrupted by it. As a law firm, we see it in lots of different ways in terms of how we organise ourselves internally, but also how we deal with our clients. I guess from a real estate perspective, it's definitely becoming a a big issue and it's starting to change the way that real estate businesses undertake their their activities. And and, and Alex, in terms of PFP Capital, obviously it's it's part of the wider places for people group and you manage one of the largest portfolios only collectively across the group one of the largest portfolios of, of homes that's right we've got just under two hundred thousand homes and we're very deliberate we say homes not units and it's it's people first um, mentality all the time so it's customers not tenants how many um, people is that then roughly i have no idea i'm i will go and ask them if you like but um the point is that the volume of data that we capture across that is absolutely enormous and i think one of the big challenges is that i know that our kind of IT team are t- grappling with is how to cut it, how to use that, how to use it in a way that's ethical and how we store it and comply with GDPR and all those fun things, but actually asking the right questions so that we can make that data useful to us as a business, but also to our customers. And, and you operate those homes yourselves. And this is kind of part of the, the, the point here, isn't it, in terms of that data being useful it's got to be used for some kind of operational benefit. Absolutely. So we have essentially three different operational businesses within the group. So we have Homes, which is the core housing association business, and that works across a number of kind of smaller regional brands. And that's about 70,000 homes across the UK um, that are traditional social housing. Uh, We have Touchstone Residential, which is our kind of core PRS and built to rent manager. And they do a mixture of managing for us as PFP Capital, all of our properties, but also manage third party for a number of large players. And we also have RMG, Residential Management Group, who have a huge breadth, but they do everything from kind of leasehold block management um, and a real mix across there. Uh, One of our big projects is um, on the kind of Eastwick and Sweetwater, the eastern bit of the Olympic Park, where for the first time we've got all three of those management companies, but through a kind of blind tenure front end. So regardless of what type of customer you are, you come through the same portal platform um, and then it's divided up at the back now that has been an enormous headache I know to put together but it is the way that it should be we shouldn't be subdividing people's level of service by what type of client they are or customer they are so it sounds like a bit of a bit of a patchwork sort of yeah and, and I, I won't I don't think it's it's as seamless as it could be but that is one of the challenges that as Conrad said the industry is very traditionally extremely siloed extremely averse to 
uh, change because frankly if you're making you know lots of money doing things one way why would you change it so I think that's one of been one of the challenges for adoption of tech and adoption of data insights and management is well why bother what what's the what's the gain what's, the upside? what's yeah. the upside and it's a fair point and so Neil Gamasman from from Yardi's perspective obviously you've been around for four decades nearly um how has your business evolved and and to some degree are property developers the best people to to really have a view on data because I mean, these guys they build buildings and they've got shareholders to appease and those shareholders look at things from a three-year four-year perspective they're never going to take a long-term view on data are they that's a great question. Um, I, I think that they do, though. I think ultimately it depends on what the strategy of the developer is. And increasingly, uh, build to rent or multifamily is a good example by which the model has changed from long-term hold structures, by which organizations are building not only buildings but but units and space to cater to communities. And looking at being able to provide individuals the option of, of longer-term community cycles. And part of this then is being able to provide technology and interaction between being able to identify a, a community that one wants to be able to live in, how one then actually looks at the different types of units or spaces that would be available, and then um, how the owner or the operator is being able to provide services back to those residents in the most effective way. So what's, what difference would data harvesting make though because fundamentally people just want something in the right place with the right price point attached to it that might have a certain degree of amenity yeah i think the biggest disruption from a technology point of view is how real estate has traditionally been brokered or let and so it's been a very staggered type of process that one goes down to your local agency and one works looks through the window of the available units um, one um, uh, has different fee structures that are now to a large degree, been taken out of the market. But if you look at really where the market's heading, it's around marketing automation and being able to have a, a prospective resident being able to identify a unit, being able to... It's um, direct to consumer, isn't it? Direct to consumers. It's, it's taking out the, the middlemen. And I think that's really where the value is of being able to better utilize technology because it increases um, customer satisfaction in terms of just the entire uh, determining what type of a unit and what type of a environment one wants to live in. And it also helps in terms of the, the building owner and the operators reduce costs from that process because they're, they're doing a direct um, engagement model with their customer. So they just intrinsically know more about their customer. And over a period of time, they can then also use that data to be able to streamline processes and, and make their communities and provide different services, adding value to the process. And that, that, that to me is the important point is we're talking about moving away from looking just at real estate as a long-term capital asset and actually those investors looking at this as being an income flow. So it's the operational operationalization. I can never say this. The operationalization of real estate. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Comrade. Because because what what that's then doing is meaning that you've got customers, and those customers are looking for the highest level of possible service, and being able to deliver that service to them in, let's say, a built to rent environment, is going to be determined by the ability of that operator to do it in the best possible way. And there's no doubt about it. If you look at the use of technology, that's going to improve your ability to deliver a really good service to your customers. And Alex, note in terms of of PFP capital and, and places for people clearly you've got a huge range of different residents that you have to cater to and potentially the tech platforms that underpin your business operationally can help you 
break oh. down some of those barriers that you talked about enormously and one one of the first things that uh pfp did years ago was having a platform where you know having kind of a database of all the the estates that we managed and, and understanding you know all the things like antisocial behavior and how we could support that and then realizing what metrics we could track to help in, you know improve those places for all the residents and how we could you know work out what interventions worked and having a baseline and measuring and monitoring that is really important and if you can measure that you can go to then you can go to government and say and give can, us some more grant show, look, funding this is a specific issue here um that's evolved on now to things like you know uh, we've got a huge amount of stuff that our its department runs but things like sensors that um originally somebody figured out would be a good way to to track frankly absconding um customers who who were kind of bailing out before they could um, pay some rent but actually is now being used in different bits of the business in the retirement business we've got really sophisticated software that without being intrusive and having cameras on people allows you to check okay well you know that customer hasn't you know normally there's a light sensor that's been switched on by now um, and the kettle's been on um, it's 11 o'clock does someone need to go and check that they're okay Um, so there's a huge amount of stuff being done there it can help us target particular demographics focus ad spend you know inform policy and design decisions but the challenge as I said is to kind of grapple with the right kinds of data and the right kinds of questions Coming back to what you said earlier about um, a property developers, you know, the right people, the maybe not, but investors, you know, we're all about attracting more institutional investment back into residential in the UK across the piece. But investors are incredibly but as a risk business, you're, you're a not-for-profit, aren't you? You're, you're, you not don't quite, no, I'll come back to it in a second. But let me just make this point. We are... Um, seeing you know investors who are very traditionally really data focused they want to look at the indices you know on traditional asset classes like office like retail and they're used to being able to track stuff and and know where it goes and we don't have that background and that database and that indices those indices for residential in the uk so a big challenge is that we are all scrabbling around for the evidence that this is a sector that will work and be there for the long term but we can't quite evidence it yet so that that's kind of an interesting place where we are pfp structured no it's Places of People is is a not-for-dividend entity. It's not not-for-profit. All the profit we make is reinvested uh, for the lawyers in the room. It's an industrial and provident society. Uh, but th- there's a really key point in that, in that we can make decisions that perhaps others can't because we don't, we're not responsible to shareholders. But that, yeah, so that, that was, sorry, it's a very well put response but that's the crucial element is you're not there with a short three-year view that's got to keep the city well, happy you're yeah able- it's, it's important because charities and a lot of rps our charities are absolutely rightly bound by very tight charitable objects and you know, i'm a trustee of a number of charities and you know it's very important that you comply with those whereas actually for pfp capital for instance our responsibility is to essentially amplify the group's kind of mission to deliver homes at quality you know quality homes at for everybody at whatever stage of life they're at but using third-party capital and any you know the group is a minority investor in each of our funds and the returns that they get are reinvested back into activity across the wider group and and neil in terms of i I suppose looking forward with 5g on the horizon and other potential technological advancements coming up the path what does that mean in terms of how investors can make money from real estate have people actually thought about when I mean, you for example let's look at retail I mean, I know we're focusing on housing but you know retail is obviously in the doldrums at the minute a number of people under, under some pressure but the potential for shopping centers to be revived through experience that has data at its core is presumably immense yeah i, I would say that that data drives it i think that if we take a step back though i think that um, the, the biggest thing that organizations and, and within the UK people are focused on right now is to make sure that the space is properly utilized. So again, if we go back to this concept of there is space and whether you define it as 
social housing or, or retail or office, industrial, student, etc. It's at what point in time can you use that space most effectively? And maybe an example would be student housing, by which the majority of student housing is rented out for the terms that the students are in the university. So there's a huge lag, typically over the summer, by which it's only a fraction of, of utilization. Yeah, but you don't need data to tell you that. I mean, common sense will tell you that, won't it? Well, I mean, you, I, don't, you I, don't need any... 5G technology to scan a room and say, yeah, it's going to be empty in the summer, guys. Can no, the, but the question then would be is how do you effectively lease it out and can you lease it out? And so this idea that space as a service then, whether it's a, a conventional residential unit for a portion of time or if it's a student unit um, or if it then is a, a co-living unit or an Airbnb type of um, short-term rental – and the ability then to also use technology in terms of having that the process flow by which one both markets the unit, has an application for that unit, signs a lease agreement for that type of duration, but then also works with local city and council to be able to manage that. And Edinburgh is a good example by which they've really fastened on to being able to let owners and operators of student housing is in the summer times because of all the festivals and other reasons – is, is enable those properties to be let on a short-term basis. That's where the legal and planning systems need to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but what, one thing, just to come back to the, the point on 5G and the, the conversation that Alex and I were having earlier on about the benefits that come from the technology, but then trying to see where the um, profitability or the income comes from using that technology. An example around 5G. So we undertook a report with the Economist Intelligence Unit looking at the implications for next-gen connectivity. Uh, and we did that across Europe and looked at the implications for the real estate market. Um, and we went to a number of clients and looked at what they were doing. And a simple example, so Schindler's Lifts, what they're doing is they've got a joint venture with GE Capital where they're connecting millions of sensors to their lifts to enable real-time data to be delivered to the users of those lifts. Now, at one level, that seems really simple. But actually, well, what benefit would that bring? So uh, another example linked into that, we've got a, um, a build-to-rent operator who had problems with their lifts. And what they wanted to be able to do was to ensure they could share with their tenants information in real time when those lifts were or not working so that those who really needed to use the lift, so people were not as physically able as others, could find alternative ways of using different lifts in the building. Now, the problem was, A, that data wasn't there, which now it would be, but B, they were petrified about GDPR and their ability to actually share that information, which when we started to look at it, we realised that we could find a way of making mm -hmm. that work. That's a real, it's a simple piece of technology, but it's a real advantage to the tenants in that building. And in the end, if those tenants realise that they can go to a building where they've got better information, better use of their facilities, my view in the long term is they'll pay more money but, for it. But I think, but with that though, surely they just want better lifts. But I, I, but I come back to this point, this isn't about new technology, this is about communication. You don't need new technology to say, guys, the lifts are out, take the stairs. That That's not a technology okay, but, play. I, but I think, you know, there is, an, I think there is an element of, you know, if you're thinking about, take lifts, and we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but let's continue down it. You know, if you think about tall buildings in, in office space, what determines occupancy in a tall office building is the ability to get people in and out, at, you know, at scale, at the rush hour, peak point. You go into any tall building in the city of London or any other metropolis, it's the ability to get a quantum of people in and out. And that is how you value and that is how you're able to derive value in those... In yeah, those but I, I, do, I, do, I do disagree on that technology point, right? Because actually, if, if let's take... Um, that, that lift manufacturer hadn't fitted that technology in there. So you couldn't get real-time information. Yeah, sure, how are you going to let those tenants know that the lift's broken? Well, presumably you're going to do it through some kind of communication coming from the, the uh, manager in the building, sending what emails out or using their tenant engagement app. If it's done right, it would be fed straight through to my mobile. So when I'm coming back in, I'm told actually the lift's going to be maintained between one and two. So therefore come back to the building at a different time. I know it's really simple, 
But if you take the simple things and you aggregate them together, all of a sudden you give a much better tenant experience. And I think that's important. And I think the challenge with that, which I'm sure Neil can talk about more, but it is about the kind of survey fatigue element of if you extrapolate that to all the things that you could inform your residents about and how much they actually want to know. So I I think there's a challenge. The bit that I'm interested in, uh, if we could get hold of the the customer data in a compliant fashion, is um, drilling down into the kind of intentions gap. So, you know, everybody, uh, if you ask them and you say there's a gym in the building, would you use it? And people are like, yeah, great, fantastic. Um, Actually, all the evidence from the US multifamily sector shows us that fewer than 10% of people actually use the gyms in their building. They're hugely expensive to fit out. You need different ceiling heights the acoustics are a nightmare because they've got a president that's in bed with a hamburger by six o'clock no comment um so there is but there is a real challenge and that that is a thing you know you can see that across all sectors if you if you interview people before they move into a retirement community the things that they prioritize before they move in are very very different to what they prioritize when they're then there and but isn't that the same event it's the same when you go on a okay, cruise so this, this, you this go- is my point it's about it's human nature so you're making that point about it's about communication but the, the big challenge with the data is that it's understanding that people might tell you that they want xyz but actually what they're using shows you that it's different and which goes back to does it add value or not does it add value and to whom right? and that's the thing that, that where real estate i think and data and tech have struggled because fundamentally we have a very illiquid asset that's very expensive and yep. if you fit it out in a certain way it's going to incur enormous cost if you've got it wrong and you have to change it yep. so people are averse to kind of being too risky because they might have got it wrong and that's a huge impact on their operational cost so if we look at the layers of then real estate so we look at one is the customer or the resident or the tenant in terms of what does what how can you make that process easier and more frictionless for for that part of the journey how do you make the process by which the building owner and the operator can drive efficiency in terms of lower cost right increase communication um, better integration to, into whether it's building management systems or this idea of ambient technology or an intelligence right so the more data that we can collect how can you use it? So do, do I need to heat that room? Do I need to cool that hall? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so at Yardi, you know, whereas we started off as that, that core residential property management platform, we've really evolved to looking at the life cycle of all of these different sectors. So how, so, how are you able to, so technically, how does that work? How are you yeah. able to plug what you harvest yeah. into a real-time heating system? Does yeah, that- so we, we have technologies and we have a platform called Yardi Pulse, which is a fully integrated building management system and uh, and operations platform that combines multiple different things. So on one thing, it looks at energy consumption or any types of utility consumption. So it allows the building owner and the operator to to look at and, and cooperate in terms of what th- they can do more effectively. But two, then also real-time integration into different building management systems. So whether that's an HVAC or whether that's a thermostat and other things, and, but specifically on residential, then, as we really look at it, it's in terms of then integrating into other smart home devices. And it's less focused around, can I turn the lights on or off? Can I you know, have my, my blinds shut off or lowered or raised? But it's really looking at three core aspects. So one would be digital locks. So the ability to make it much easier for, for a resident to move in, make it much easier for a maintenance individual to um, either do a turnaround on a unit, so it shortens the, the life cycle that the unit is down, but then also into thermostats. So the ability for both the resident to control that, but also the owner and the operator to be able to control that more effectively. And then over a period of time, and, and what we've also done is integrated into Amazon Alexia. 
as an example. But the bit that's getting traction there, I think, is around the health and well-being. And Andy, I know you've done this a lot with your yeah. guys on Moda, but it's about, you know, air quality is a huge issue in virtually everywhere. I don't think we're that far off having customers who you'll have air quality monitors on their phone and be able to say, hang on, your building is making me sick. I can see this. You know, we all know if you talk to any facilities manager in an office, they can tell you about, the, you know, the link between productivity decline and the, the increase in CO2 in an office building in the afternoon. That's a good point. Is, is there a legal risk there, comrade, in terms of that point that Alex makes? Um... Well, there's definitely going to be a legal issue, um, but but I don't think it's one that will be insurmountable. I mean, I, again, if you look at the law, what the law will do is it will respond to what the clients and markets need them to do. Um, but people I, have a right to not be poisoned, right? Yeah, well, well, correct. But I mean, so there are, there, and it's, clearly it's not my area, but there, you know, there are regulations that are covering air quality. But but I think there's a broader point, which is looking at the um, the well-being and the way in which the operator and manager of that property has to be concerned with the well-being of their customers. Because from places for people's perspective. Years ago. So what, what sorts of things are, are places are people doing in that, in that sphere? Because obviously you have a range of different people that you cater to that have different needs. So yeah. how are you able to, to apply? So we have a huge health and wellbeing support. strategy that's going from across our kind of our construction business. And, you know, there's, there's some stuff in the press at the moment about, you know, the, the appalling instance of sort of self-harm and and, and, and suicides in, in the uh, construction industry. Um, so it's just being, making people in that bit of our business feel supported at work and, and looked after all the way through to all of our different customers. Um, I think... We mentioned when we were talking before, one of the challenges we get because we've got such a large portfolio of different types of homes is lots of people with different kind of tech gadgets and, and tools wanting to use us as kind of a guinea pig for a pilot. Now, obviously, we don't want to use our customers as a pilot for every little thing that comes out. So we have to be really sure that when we're trying out new tools and new technologies that, that you know, we can feel relatively confident that they're going to generate some value. So we have kind of an innovation lab that, that does a really robust testing of all those kind of um, those things, those opportunities. But yeah, we, we, the the team have a huge amount of stuff, you know, sensors of, of all kinds of, um, you know, everything from the chatbots to the, the, you know, the customer interface. There's a real challenge there, though, that things that seem intuitive to a software developer in, you know, San Francisco or London or wherever are not intuitive to a 65-year-old. Now, I spent a really painful three hours with my father-in-law trying to help him renew his uh, disabled badge. And, you know, just that the online form that's meant to be straightforward is really, really not. And, I think those things are one that the, it's the little, you know, the, the extra space bar that means something isn't acceptable for a for a form to be processed. I think there's a there's a lot that can be learned from the student market here because the reality is looking at the well-being of students is something that student operators have had to look at. It, I mean, for a long while, but increasingly recently, because the pastoral care of the students is clearly um, right at the centre of what they're doing. The same matters apply for general build-to-rent because actually in the end, I, I still go back to the point, which is that if you've got happy, fulfilled customers who really feel they're getting the most out of the property that they're living in, they will stay there longer. And ultimately, then that's going to avoid uh, void periods for you as an operator and, you, and you're going to get more money from the bill. Yeah. And, and it's then, that flip that you said earlier. It's not about the kind of so much the gross to net and it's about the operating income and that therefore retention matters more than churn. And that is a complete business model flip for yeah, the industry. Yeah. And the services around it, right? But but being able to provide a, a service or an option for someone who is at university, they come out, they have their first job, they have find a partner they have a family you know they age etc and being able to have different types of options for them over that period of time and cater to them on a long-term customer loyalty basis is, is mm. critical and they're now getting used to it i mean the point is we've got a generation that are coming out of that type of purpose-built yeah. um, yeah. provision of rental accommodation who now expect it and that's yeah. what they want and 
you know, and it, it doesn't have to be overly complicated because I think that well-being piece you can get lost to some degree in some of the detail. You know, some of the things that cause the greatest level of stress are very simple things. Are lights getting put? you know, right when they go wrong? Is the Wi-Fi working when it should be? Do the doors open when they're meant to? Is the is the rubbish being taken away when it's meant to be taken away? And if you start to look at some of the feedback you get from customers, actually, it's some of the real simple stuff that's the most concerning for them. Which goes back to what, what adds so, but value, I, I, right? But so. Neil, how, how are these, because just, let's just bring it back to data for a second, because I think it's, it, that, that point that Karma is actually quite a, a crucial one, that most of the things that annoy people and that cause aggro are quite fundamental. It's have I got enough light? Is it a bit smelly? Is it too hot? Has someone taken out the trash? And those are all quite binary things that you can measure, aren't they? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So both measure and capture, but then also communicate, right? So the ability... So how do you report this stuff to the point? So if, if a comrade's got a fund, uh, a fund manager client that, that wants to look at an investment opportunity, if you as a data and software service provider can go, right, we can tell you a report on this asset that it's got X percent more daylight than the next building. It's better at well-being on this measure and this measure. What are the measures that we're able to look at at starting to bring in that enable someone like Comrade to to advise his clients more effectively? Well, I think the big question or the devil's in the details in terms of the type of questions or metrics that someone wants to be able to track, right? I mean, it's very open-ended. But things like stress, okay, look, look, that's a fair point, but okay, but let's take one of those things, so stress. And again, we might not have all the stuff right now, but we're not too far Stress off. from an individual resident or yeah, stress so from an overall property? We're stress, um, sorry, yes, on a human level, so stress, personal, uh, person stress, um, which again, you could presumably... Um, you correlate with with other things happening, heat, light. As long as you can capture it, but you know, I, I think this is a kind of an esoteric uh, pathway that we're going down but, in terms maybe, of. Maybe, but so I'm you interested. need someone to be able to communicate with you, and and but, but if you, you can look at it with, a, with, to, a, with a with a a wristwatch or or heart monitor, things like that, it can detect. But so you know, these things probably aren't legal come within the current frameworks. You're not. Well, it's all it's all based on an opt-in type of strategy, really, right? Yeah. So that's where Correct. the intersection right, so between. Let's create a no, theoretical no, test there, bed. There isn't a theoretical. There's a, there's a real so insurance company. So vitality, and they did it a little bit here. Yeah. You know, 15 years ago, I had a gym membership that was essentially free. If I went a certain number of times, it yeah. would you know the, my insurance company would pay for it. And um, that I don't know if it's for GDPR or whatever reason that seems to have kind of dipped off a little well, bit. GDPR is the stock excuse but, for everything. Isn't I know, it? but in yeah. South Africa. And in Australia, those, those vitality have a huge presence across, you know, essentially rewarding people and incentivizing people very publicly on everything from, you know, well done, you didn't buy, you know, chips, you bought salad, and yeah. and it, it, the level of kind of intrusion from an outsider point of view was bizarre to me. But people were really, you know, they, they've tapped into that kind of Pokemon Go competitive edge thing where people wanted to get X number of points to get those. But discounts. that's what I mean. But coming back to, to to Comrade's point on lifts, if you can actually provide some data which shows, right, the lifts are really crap and they're really winding me up and they're causing loads of stress, and you can show that on a real time basis look, at seven forty five on a Monday when the lifts are broken, everyone's trying to get out to go to work. Well, I'll tell, who, I'll tell you who, going. who's going to be able to help with that. So there's some. Um, I don't know if you come across Home Views, which uh, new it's business. A, it's a review website, though. Yeah, they're not, correct. They're not a biometrics. Well, business. no, but actually, but I think if you and at the moment it's slightly anecdotal but they're they're building the ability to actually mine the data and then use it for for the purpose I'm about to suggest but if you look through that quickly you can start to see the things that are frustrating the tenants within those buildings or indeed are making them very happy and in the end if you get down to a granular level where you can start to say actually well yeah I'm really 
annoyed because uh, it's taking far too long for uh, the manager to fix X. Well, actually, if you've got that data and you're able to look at it across lots of different buildings, across lots of different developers in lots of different cities, all of a sudden you'll start to build a picture about what it is that is actually distressing people. Now, my view, if I was looking not just about where I want to live, but if I was an investor putting aside what the returns from that investment is going to be, if I'm concerned about making sure that I'm investing into a business that is delivering the very best service to the customers within that building, then I know that I'm going to be wanting to work with developers who are understanding that data and using it. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to other types of measurements that people use today, whether is, do I have good broadband in my building, right? Um, is my do I have a concierge service and what does that provide? Do I have um, childcare around? Um, do I have maybe a, a flexible workspace in my residential community because I don't want to travel into London every day and my my employer allows me to to work locally? Um, all of these things are, are, are services that can be added. And I don't think that the information is that difficult to capture. It's what you do with it and how you communicate back to the customer. And the key challenge for the real estate sector to learn about that is that it's not enough just to have provided those amenities and gone, ta-da, because the the expectations are continually moving. So one, one of the things that, you know, the whole space as a service concept, you know, that Anthony Slumbers writes so well about is, you know, that increasing customer expectation. We know, uh, you know, there's brilliant data that um, Uber have, a slide I use in my presentations a lot, that shows that the customers' willingness to wait a year after Uber is launched in a city dramatically decreases because as soon as you provide a service that wasn't there, it quickly becomes normalised and then people it want, want it to be better. And that's the thing. It's it's not enough for you know, developers to just go, ta-da, we have done you a building with these amenities in. It's about, okay, well, how are they managed? And so that's why the, the bit that I think our sector is gradually realising is it's not just enough to kind of market it. It is about the really granular, low-margin, long-term operations that will tie back to the returns over the long term. Yeah, and that's the point again, because it's looking at income. I think it's yeah. there's two parts here, isn't there? There's the one part which is just doing the right thing for the customers in the building and ultimately them wanting to go to a particular building because it's providing the services in the right way. But there's also the return. And I think over time, as we get a more mature market, I think you will begin to see quite simply that there will be a better return coming from a better managed building. I don't mean just economically managed. I mean managed in the sense of what kind of service yeah. is provided. Which is the best marketing, is. right? Yeah. You can see that I've been on panels with you know colleagues in the built to rent sector who have established portfolios already and they have openly said, yeah, we can see that those buildings of ours that have full-time on-site 24-7 management have better retention and, and you know, perform better financially. Is there, is there data, Neil, that shows that? I think in, in certain markets, there's data. And I think if you look at the US, which is probably the most data-heavy market based on the the institutional ownership of multifamily and, and, and uh, single-family homes and other things, is absolutely, is one's able to slice and dice the data based on the different types of services um, and, and validate whether it does add value and a return. I mean, a good example would be is just, do you allow pets? I mean, this is kind of, again, a little bit on, on the side, but... But if you allow pets in certain properties, does that actually add value to the, the resident experience? Not too dissimilar to the co-working facility that we use down at Waterloo through TOG is they allow pets. And it's just it enlightens everyone's day and people then shout about it, right? I mean, the best customer is one that talks to others about the experience. And in the days of social media today, that's your best marketing. And that's something my Touchstone colleague said, you know, that's one of the things 
proving choosing to be more pet friendly was from some of the data that they got that said people wanted that yeah. and i have that you know i use this all the time but 10 years ago in the states it was as hard as it is here to rent with a pet it's now 40 percent of the u.s multifamily market yeah. is pet friendly and i was you know we are the country in the uk that created the rspca 60 years before the nspcc so we infinitely prefer dogs to children so it's much much easier to do you know a pet friendly rental community than it is a family friendly one frankly so let's you know l- looking at that kind of thing is really really um Where does it go to the evidence. toilet if you're in a big service office building in Waterloo? I mean, just the practicalities of some of these things. Down along lines 18 and 19 on the train station, I think. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's 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 sort of draw things to a close on 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 that on that note. Um, let's just sort of just one thing from each of you that that you think will start to creep through the UK market over the next years when it comes to data. Uh, and operations so comrade from your perspective you know from from where you you sit and looking across different elements of the market what's one thing you you think some of the clients you work with are going to start to do that they're not currently doing i I think it's definitely going to be around um the level of engagement between the operator and the tenant in terms of the level of data that they're willing to provide i think at the moment people are going to be more comfortable with stuff that some parties may say is a little bit creepy. yes i do i do i do so the I, line of creepiness is going to going to push out completely right and i think but the only reason that's going to happen is when the people who are giving up their own personal data have really clear understanding of a the data security but b then the way in which their lives are going to be improved by using that data. I think we all do it in other walks of life at the moment. We accept the fact that we will give away personal data because we get a benefit in return for it. So we creepiness is fine as long as there's an upside. As long as I've agreed to it and I get the upside, I don't think it's creepy. It's only creepy if people are mining it in a way that I have, don't have control of and I'm not getting a benefit. And Alex Note, in, in that regard, what, what one thing do you think people are going to start to do the next few years? We'll park the creepy piece. We've dealt with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's on a kind of customer business level. For me, it's the, the bit we haven't touched on and I think the key challenge for the data bit is about sharing. Everybody in the sector is talking about the need for more collaboration and getting, you know, partnership. But actually what we're seeing is that people are still really, really averse to sharing client data or their own data. And we can't build that baseline in those metrics and you until guys, people and that's, do that. So you guys are committed to sharing your data. Well, again, the, the challenge that I personally, absolutely, I would share mine for, for businesses like, let's say, Touchstone within the group who manage for third party fund managers other than us, you know, it's not their data, it's their client's data. Therefore, they need client permission. And at the moment, the culture across the entire industry is that everybody is waiting for somebody else to go first and sharing. I know so that we the need UKAA a cultural change. A lot, that they've got a huge committee trying to do that. Yeah. And I think that that sharing is going to be the thing that catalyzes the next big jump at an institutional level. So, and Neil, just so, just before you you suggest your your piece of foresight, do you agree with this this challenge that Alex makes? And does does the sector need to share more? Yeah, I think absolutely. And and again, the U.S. market is an example where an enormous amount of data is shared. But I think people also have to understand that it's not the the granularity of the data; it's anonymized data that gives you mm-hmm. enough information so that you can do comparative analysis rather than than exposing kind of the real operating costs and, and tenancy information and other things. And and this just exists in so many other markets, whether it's in the real estate, the commercial sector, and of course, equities. And it's not that you're not competitive. As I said, you absolutely you compete with, you know, others in the market, but you compete on different things. There's an acknowledged baseline of shareable data that everybody uses. But I think the, just linking to, I think actually that level of collaboration between different players in the um, real estate market is happening outside of data. I think if you go back a few years, people were less willing to form joint ventures, to work as partnerships. And now you see the most competitive organisations coming together to partner on particular developments or schemes or ideas. 
I think, you know, that that is breaking down the barriers. So you would hope then that they will become more willing to share their data as things move forward. So that whether they do or they don't, but at least we're seeing a degree of collaboration. So more collaboration, possibly a bit more creepiness, but provided there's (laughs) some upside. And and going back to to Neil's point, we're probably going to likely see a a lot more disintermediation as well. Um, So thanks very much to Neil Gamasma from Yardi, to Comrade Davis from Osborne Clark, Alex Note from PFP Capital. This has been a Resi podcast of Property Week. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening.